You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, folks. Welcome to Episode 9 of Attaboy Clarence. Nice to see you all again. This episode, as always, is brought to you by Amazon. Do your shopping at Amazon by going to attaboyclarence.com. Find an Amazon link. Go on, I dare you. Find it. Hunt it down. Click on it and do your shopping at Amazon to support this show. You think that was the best ad you've ever heard? Well, I want to show you an ad from 1947, but I must preface this with a warning. It's the most addictive advertisement you will ever hear. Seriously, you're going to want this thing played at your wedding. C-R-E-S-P-A B-L-A-N-C-A Cresta Blanca Cresta Blanca Uh (laughs) Uh-huh Oh, dear Uh, I don't know about you, but the reason I don't smoke anymore is because I don't feel that cigarettes give me extra margin Listen More and more people are smoking to this tune every day. Because Parliament is the one cigarette that gives you an extra margin. Extra margin because Parliament puts the filter where it does the most good. Recessed a neat, clean quarter inch away. Extra margin because tobacco... If only there was a song to explain this black magic to me. Parliament gives you extra margin. The filter's recessed and made to stay a neat, clean quarter inch away. Parliament gives you extra margin. Parliament, Parliament gives me extra margin. You're smoking neat, you're smoking clean with Parliament today. Join those who have found that tobacco tastes best when the filter's recessed. Smoke the cigarette with an extra margin. Parliament. Jazz hands. And that's why my children smoke nothing but Parliament. A buzzer took a monkey for a ride in the air. The monkey thought that everything was on the square. The buzzer tried to throw the monkey off his back. But the monkey grabbed his neck and said, Now listen, Jack. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and fly right. Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top. Ain't no use in diving. What's the use of jiving? Straighten up and fly right. Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top. This week, I, I really want to tell you a true story about a guy called Francis Aiello. He was born in 1915 and spent his young life at the movies. He was a massive movie fan, spent most of his time in the theatres growing up, and his favourite movie star was James Cagney. Seriously, this guy watched every single Cagney movie when it came to the theatres. And as he was growing up, he began to notice that he was looking more and more like him. People would actually stop him on the street and tell him so, which, of course 
He didn't mind because James Cagney was his hero. But when he was growing up, he really, really wanted to work in this very swanky, very luxurious hotel in New York. It was called the Warwick Hotel. He wanted to work there so much that he sat in the lobby for weeks and weeks on end in the hopes that the management would see how willing he was and give him a job. He was there so long that he earned the nickname the Earl of Warwick. Anyway, his plan didn't work and he started selling newspapers on street corners. But all the time, his appearance was becoming more and more like James Cagney's. He started doing impressions of James Cagney to his friends and his family and they all loved it. So one day, he decides that it's his dream to meet James Cagney and that he wants to make that dream come true. So he quits his job selling newspapers on street corners. He says goodbye to his family and he hitchhikes from Brooklyn, New York, all the way to Hollywood, 2,800 miles. It takes him about a week to get there. And when he finally does get there, he realises that meeting James Cagney isn't going to be as easy as just knocking on his front door. So, I mean, he has no idea where James Cagney lives, or even if he's in Hollywood at that time. All he knows is that he's a contract player for Warner Brothers. So Francis Aiello walks to Warner Brothers Studios. He's tired. He's been on the road for over a week. He's dishevelled, but he smartens himself up as best as he can. And he goes to the gate and he asks to speak to James Cagney. Well, of course, he gets turned away, you know. Hundreds of people every week came to the studios to see their idols and they were never admitted. <laughs> it's no different for Francis Aiello. So he waits outside the studio for a few days, but he doesn't see James Cagney. He asks around, but by now he's feeling a bit deflated by the whole experience. Bear in mind, Francis Aiello is not a stalker. He's just a huge admirer who wants to shake hands with his hero. So rather than make any trouble, he walks to the city limits and begins the long journey home, hitchhikes all the way back to Brooklyn. Takes him another week. For anyone else, that would have been the end of it. It would have been a funny little story to tell their kids, you know, Daddy hitched all the way to Hollywood one time to meet James Cagney, but couldn't get past the irritating little despot on the gate. But Francis Aiello isn't put off, and he decides to try again. He sells newspapers for another year, saves his money, he quits his job again, says goodbye to his family, and he hitchhikes all the way back to Hollywood. He goes to the gate, maybe they change their policy. They have. He asks to make an appointment with Mr. Cagney. Uh, they say no. He waits outside again. Nothing. So he's faced with the prospect of hitchhiking 2,800 miles home again when he decides that maybe the best way of meeting his hero would be to stay in town. So he looks around for a job. He gets one almost instantly on the vaudeville circuit. So every night, Francis Aiello trots out on stage and does James Cagney impersonations <laughs> in nightclubs in and around Hollywood, and he becomes quite popular. Well, one night, when he's finished his act, a man comes to his dressing room and says that he has a job for him. He works for Warner Brothers Studios, and they've been hunting high and low for a James Cagney lookalike, and Francis Aiello is the best he's ever seen. So he takes him to the studio presents him to the director, Michael Curtiz, who signs him on the spot to play a young James Cagney in the movie Angels with Dirty Faces, on the condition that he changes his name to something that sounds a bit more Anglo. And that is the story of how Frankie Burke was born. Little Francis Aiello, who followed his dream, hitchhiking all the way to Hollywood and back and back again in order to meet his hero. In the end, he didn't just shake James Cagney by the hand. 
he got to be James Cagney. And when you watch it now and you see Frankie Burke in the opening section of Angels with Dirty Faces, remember that he's only there because the Earl of Warwick never gave up on his dream. Love Frankie Burke. Love that he did that. Just love that. Never gave up. Awesome. And when you watch that film now, it's uncanny, his resemblance to James Cagney. I remember the first time I watched it thinking, God, he must have filmed that when he was 15 and then filmed the rest of the movie when he was older. But no, that's Frankie Burke. Listen, Rocky, I, I've been worrying about this all last night. I can't let you take the whole plane. Pipe down. You want that flapper to hear you? I'll get this. You got to wait in you? Okay. I want to be a sucker. Yeah, but, but Rocky, maybe you think what I was in on it, would you? They'd go easier on you. Well, they're pigs out here. Well, now you listen to me. Just because you've been running faster than me, there's no reason why I got to go out and eat yourself. Yeah, but it ain't fair to you, Rocky. Now, look, so they send me up. So what? What have I got to lose? The old man's got troubles enough without me. Forget it's the bridge. I got caught and you got away. That's all there is to it. But you, Rocky, supposing I was the one who got caught, I bet you wouldn't keep quiet. I'd make him send you up, too. Go on, what do you think I am? I'd lay dead just like you're going to do. You would? Sure. Always remember, don't be a sucker. So, what have I watched this week? Well, The Doorway to Hell from 1930. That's right. This stars uh, Lou Ayres who went on to play Dr. Kildare, a really baby-faced actor. He was married to Ginger Rogers throughout the 30s. Throughout all her musicals with uh, Fred Astaire, she was married to Lou Ayres, a very lucky guy. Really softly spoken. If you've seen a Dr. Kildare movie where he played Dr. Kildare opposite Lionel Barrymore, who played Dr. Gillespie, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Always a nice guy. Completely playing against type in this film. He plays uh, Louis Ricano in this film. He's a, he's a mob boss. He's really young, but he's uh, managed to uh, coordinate the warring factions in Chicago to work together, and uh, they form this really strong union of mobsters. Now, we're all in one racket or another, and lately there's been a lot of double-crossing going on, one mob crashing into another mob's territory. We're in big business. The only thing wrong with it is that it needs organizing and it needs a boss. I'm taking over both jobs. I'm going to lay this town out in zones. I'll give each mob what I think is coming to them and not one inch more. Get that? Each gang will kick into me and I'll take care of everything. But then he decides to quit, leave it all behind, gets married goes and buys a house in the country. Um, his younger brother is at a military school and he doesn't love anyone more than he loves his younger brother. But when he leaves, and leaves the unified mob in the hands of James Cagney, his best friend, it's not long before it falls into disarray without him. Uh, and Cagney is a well-meaning boss, but he's just not as coordinated, not switched on as, uh, as Louis. So the mob ask him to come back, but he doesn't want to. So to influence him, they kidnap his younger brother, or at least they try to. Something goes horribly wrong, and Louis goes on this rampage of revenge. There are quite a few pre-code gangster films, obviously. There's The Public Enemy, Little Caesar, Scarface. But this, I have to say, is an absolute gem. You need to see this film. If you like early gangster films, this is right up there. Hey, why don't you come clean? Because you haven't got a thing on me. All right, if I knocked off those other two guys... What are you holding Louie for? That's our business. Where were you at 10 o'clock last night? How many times have I got to tell you? I was at a dance. How long have they been holding dances at that house in Charleston Street? <laughs> you are a little afraid of Louie, huh? Say, what do you think would happen to you if Louie found out? Now, come on. Come clean. Kick in. Kick in what? 
I thought you might want to plead guilty to killing the midget in self-defense. That'd make it nice and easy for everybody. You'd be sprung in about five years, and you'd be living on Easy Street. I wouldn't plead guilty to having an appetite. It's surprisingly deep for a gangster film, too. There are so many different relationships that work on different levels throughout the film. You've got James Cagney as his best friend, Miloway, and they really love and respect each other. But Miloway's having an affair with Louis's wife behind Louis's back. So you've got that dynamic playing out. You've got these evil gangsters who really get on with Miloway, but don't get on with Louis. So you've got that dynamic playing out. You've got this cop called O'Grady who's really good friends with Louis, um, but really wants to bust him, too. So you've got that dynamic playing out. And then when this tragedy happens halfway through the film everything switches it's a fantastic film and honestly it's impossible to know where it's going to go i went in thinking that it wasn't going to be very good because i didn't believe lou Ayres could pull off tough guy he's awesome in this film give it a chance it's a fantastic gangster film and it won't end the way you think it's going to end Light Affair this week came in the form of Blonde Crazy from 1931, again, James Cagney film. <laughs> He's just in all pre-code films, I think. I'm trying to stick to pre-code because, uh, yeah, well, in a couple of shows' time, I'm going to be doing a bit of a documentary about pre-code attitudes. But, um, <laughs> James Cagney again, uh, with Joan Blondell, perfect casting, really. They play a couple of confidence tricksters who are making their way across America, taking suckers for all they're worth. They get uh, taken by uh, Lewis Calhoun, who is, uh, who is a more experienced con man. And they spend the movie trying to get him back. I'm going to stick with you. And I'm going to even up the score with Dan Barker for you. He took our dough and he's going to pay. He made you resort to common, dirty thievery. And we'll make him resort to worse than that before we finish. Atta, baby. You had me worried for a minute. Come on, now, what are the plans? Never mind. You asked me before if I was hungry. Well, come on, I've got an appetite now. We'll split the hip of that horse between us. That's set alongside the story of them falling in and out of love with each other. Uh, Ray Milland pops up as well as a, as a really stuck-up uh, banker who manages to uh, woo uh, Joan Blondell's character away from uh, Cagney, but turns out to be a bit of a crook himself. It's a really great film. It's very short. It's like 79 minutes, and it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's perfectly pitched. It barrels along. There's some great sequences in it. Oddly enough, for a pre-code film, it has a very post-Haze uh, Code ending, which kind of doesn't sit correctly at the end of the film. But, you know, if you like Cagney and you like Blondell, it's perfect. Hi, Mrs. Dempsey. How's that right cross today? Ah, oh, come on, honey. Don't put on the chill that way. I sized you up wrong yesterday. I didn't mean to get you sore. I like you, Ann, really. You know, you're the first girl that ever socked me for going for. Yes? Mm-hmm. You know, honey, I'd like to have you sock me like that every day. Oh, would you? Sure, honey. I'd love it. <laughs> what a woman. Lastly, I went right back to 1929 and watched The Canary Murder Case, starring William Powell as Philo Vance, who's called in by District Attorney Markham to assist when a famous nightclub singer known as The Canary is found dead. It's a locked room mystery, and it soon transpires that The Canary was a master blackmailer who had a handful of men in a grasp. So there's certainly no shortage of suspects. It co-stars Eugene Palette as, uh, as Heath. Palette, in case you don't recognise the name, you may know the voice, very deep, 
gravelly voice. I don't think there's anything worth you looking at, Mr. Vance. It's a clear case. Robbery. She put up a battle and they wrecked the joint. I see. As simple as that, eh? That's it. Well, just the same, Sergeant. If you don't mind, I think I'll have just one little look. Surely, Mr. Vance, go right ahead. He was a bulldog of a man, a really distinctive uh, face. He featured in The Adventures of Robin Hood as Friartuck and The Mark of Zorro as Frey Philippe, although you've never heard a more un-Spanish man in all of your life. <laughs> a wonderful actor, though, and, and always a welcome sight in any film. Uh, Jean Arthur is also here in her first sound role. You'd think to look at her in this that it was an early film role for her, but she made a mass of silent films. Uh, the Canary Murder Case was her 46th film, and she was very busy during the 30s in films. Her breakout hit was Mr. Deeds Goes to Town in 1936, and then she enjoyed a really productive working relationship with Frank Capra. She did You Can't Take It With You and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. She's got a tiny, rather thankless little role in this film, <laughs> but it's nice to see her. The really interesting thing about the Canary murder case, though, is that the Canary is played by Louise Brooks. You see, the Canary murder case was originally filmed as a silent movie, but then they decided to make it a talkie, so they got the cast back and re-recorded their dialogue. The only cast member that wouldn't come back, though, was Louise Brooks. Uh, her contract with Paramount had finished when she'd made the film, and she'd gone to Germany to make films with the director G.W. Pabst. So Paramount ordered her back, but as she was out of her contract and because she didn't like working in Hollywood anyway, and because they didn't even offer her more money to come back, uh, she said no. As a result of that, she got blackballed by the studios who basically told her not to come back. Her dialogue in this film is dubbed by Margaret Livingston, so if you watch it, don't be too put off by the sight of the absolutely radiant Louise Brooks speaking with a rather high-pitched, irritating accent. <laughs> May I speak to Mr. Louis Mannix, please? Quiet, quiet, my wife. Don't get excited. I just thought you'd like to know I've sold the body down the river. I'm going to marry young Spotswood. <laughs> Splendid. Yes, darling. And I decided that you're the best man. Best man? Yeah, the best man I know of to kick in with a nice, handsome present in cash. Oh, dear, you know I can't afford... What do you mean is, you can't afford to let the ball and chain know what a big-hearted Santa Claus you've been. Now, look here, I've told you what I'd do to you if you ever got to the wife. Forget that bunk. And be on my front porch after the show with that Jack, or I'll get to your wife all right. She went on to star as Lulu in Pandora's box for Peps, so it's obvious she made the right decision. Damn shame she didn't make more talkies, though. I've got a great radio play for you this week. It's from a show called The Secrets of Scotland Yard. This was a British radio show which ran from 1949 to 1951, and it starred Clive Brook as the narrator, who would introduce each episode with a very urbane comment about the nature of crime. <laughs> he really was a very genial host, and the programme itself was a massive hit in the United Kingdom, and it aired all over the world. Didn't get to the US until 1957, but it was a hit there too. In the show, real-life cases from the annals of Scotland Yard were uh, dramatised and retold, so it was quite a groundbreaking show for its time. Audiences were as fascinated with true crime and infamous criminals of history as they are today. The episode I've chosen for you is called Buckets of Blood, and I should probably preface it with 
a slight warning. It is an old show, but there are a couple of gruesome moments which you may not consider to be suitable for younger ears. With that caution out of the way, let me hand you over to the debonair Mr. Clive Brook and Buckets of Blood. How do you do? This is Clive Brook. It is said that Christian II, a 16th century king of Denmark, would inform one night that a courtier had been stabbed and killed in a tavern brawl. The candles had been extinguished during the fight, and the murderer was consequently unknown. Now determined to discover him, the king ordered all who had been present to reassemble in the tavern. One by one, they were made to lay their hands over the heart of the dead man. As the last man, a soldier, obeyed the king's command, blood trickled from the mouth of the corpse. Thereupon, the soldier broke down and admitted the murder. This charming little tale is the origin of the belief that when confronted with the evidence of his guilt, the criminal will confess. Coupled with a maxim that a murderer will always return to the scene of his crime, it formed the basis of criminal detection for many years. The practice in England was to stick the head of a victim on the top of a pole, and for officers of the law to stand guard over it, scrutinizing the demeanor of each passerby. This was done with the trunkless head that was discovered on the left bank of the Thames early in 1726. It was only one of the appetizing episodes in the casebook history I'm about to tell you. By way of warning, or perhaps inducement, I've called the case Buckets of Blood. It was in the foggy dawn of a day early in 1726 that a night watchman at Horse Ferry, Westminster, left his post and walked a few steps down to the edge of the Thames. As he neared the water, he tripped over something and fell into the mud. Kneeling, he turned to see what the object was. What he saw made him rise to his feet with a cry. It was a human head. He took his ghastly discovery to another watchman, and together they went to the magistrate of the district, Mr. Justice Lambert. You two, what is the meaning of disturbing me at this hour? I've not even breakfasted. Well, your lordship, it's like this. I'm a watchman. Yes, yes, but get to the point, man. What have you got in that sack? Go on, Bill, show him. I found this in the mud near my hat, sir, this morning. Good heavens! Return it to the sack, man. I stumbled on it as I was walking down to the... Return it to the sack, will you? There's mud dripping all over my carpet. I found this bucket just near where Bill found the head. Take it out of the house, man. There's blood on it. It's bound to drip. Oh, my beautiful carpet. All right, very good. Well, what's to be done, your worship? Soon, sir. The procedure is well and truly laid down. The head must be washed, the hair combed, and then this most ugly specimen shall be posted about St. Margaret's churchyard for all and sundry to see. Thus, we shall perhaps discover the identity of this bodiless corpse. And now, sir, you may depart, leaving the evidence in the scullery, if you please. Oh, what an unconscionable hour to be shown such a hideous object. When the mud and blood had been washed away, it was seen that the head was that of a middle-aged man. But who he was, or what he was, it was impossible to know. Crowds soon gathered about St. Margaret's churchyard to view the exhibit. And on the third day, a shopkeeper called Ashby, John Ashby, excitedly grasped his companion's arm. Rex, Rex, look. What is it, John? Yeah, it's on the pole. Oh, I've already seen it. It's been at least past three days. But for sure, it's a man. 
Come with me, Rach. Oh, you don't mean to drag me through this. Come on. Come here. Come on, Well, oh, now you have a close view, John. You satisfied? Yes, I am. Come on, Rach. Now, look here, John, I refuse to be dragged about like this. Very good, then. You go to the Eagle Tavern. I'll meet you there at two of the clock. Now, where will you be until then? I shall be talking to Mrs. Catherine Hayes about that head up out there on the pole. I must tell you how she came to be in London and why Mr. Ashby wanted to see her about the head on the pole. Now, at the age of 15, Catherine had quarreled with her father, a labourer, and had left her parents' home when she set off to walk to London a hundred miles of the crow flies. But at the first hospital she came to, she was diverted from her course. Glad that you're a company, Wednesday. What they call you, my pretty one? Cat, so please you, sir. So please me, eh? Gad, but you please me greatly. Uh, do you work here, Cat? No, sir. I'm on my way to London. <laughs> London City is no place for you, my lovely. Look about the room, lass. What do you see? <laughs> A goodly lot of men, sir. Fine officers all, I'd Indeed say. Indeed we are, big air. These majesties, truest and most loyal soldiers. What? And we've all got a good eye for a woman, Cass. A woman like you. Fine complexion, heavenly figure. How old are you, by the way? Fifteen, sir. But older than my years. <laughs> I'll wager you. You've had a fine life with us, Cass, in our camp, you know. We've quarters at Great Ombersley. We're on our way there now. But that is in Worcestershire, sir. I'm for London. You were for London, Cass. But now... Ah, it's a fine life with the king's officers, Cass. Mm. Oh, sir. <laughs> you must not do that in so public a place. <laughs> Are you still for London, eh, Cass? No, sir. I think I'm for his majesty's officers, sir. But after two years, the officers became tired of Cass' company, and she was advised to leave the barracks. Her next stop was in the county of Warwickshire, where she became servant to a farmer called Hayes. The farmer had a son, and Kath, at 17, was extremely attractive. Thus it came about that the elder Hayes soon found cause to have a serious talk with his son. Oh, come in, Arthur. I want to speak to you. It's about Catherine, isn't it, Dad? Yeah, you always were an honest lad. Yes, it's about Kath. She's only been with us a month, and people are already whispering about you and her. Let them whisper. I was planning to tell you anyway. Kath and I are married. What? How can you be? This is a joke. Some prank of yours. Oh, Frank, Dad, we married secretly in Worcester last week. We're very much in love, Dad. I hope you won't do anything to make unpleasantness. Married to a mere slab of a serving girl? Whatever you may say, you shan't alter my feelings. You'll both leave this house tomorrow. I never want to see either of you again. I hope you'd welcome Rich, how dare you open anything after such action? Out of my house to you, eh? Out! Yes, Dad, I heard. But the next morning, Hayes Sr. repented a little and gave his son money on the condition that he and his wife would leave the district. He also granted him an allowance of 26 pounds a year. No mean sum in those days. Kath refused to live anywhere but London. And as Arthur Hayes was at this time still anxious to grant his bride's every whim, to London they went. Arthur took a house and let apartments. He made money. He opened a chandler's shop and sold coal. He made more money. He started a pawnbroker's business. He made yet more money. But he was by no means happy. Kath, this cannot go on. What do you mean? It's the third time this week that neighbors have come to me with their complaints about you. Robinson from number 20 has just been in here saying he'd, he'd murder you if you crossed his path again. I hope you punished him for speaking in such fashion of your wife. I'm tired of standing up for you, Kath. 
Is it true that you told his wife that you'd seen him with that woman in the past? Of course I told her. You know what I think of such things. And if we women did not stand together... Why must then... you be forever making trouble with my friends? John Ashby was in here only yesterday asking if it was you who spread the rumor that he couldn't pay his rent. Well, he can't. You know it. And who are you to tell everyone about it? No one is perfect. You least of all. Do you think I don't know what happens in this house when I'm away on business? How dare you? Oh, don't deny it. Spare me that. Arthur, how can you? My husband. You know I love you more than anyone or anything. We leave here on Tuesday, Kath. You're ruining my trade and my reputation in the neighborhood. I've taken a house in Tyburn Road. We'll make a fresh start there. But the change of environment did not alter Catherine's nature. She still made trouble for her husband. She still was unfaithful to him when his back was turned. However, Arthur, in spite of his unhappy home life, continued to prosper in his pawnbroker's business. He also left three rooms of his house's apartments. One of the lodgers was a young tailor called Thomas Billings. Catherine liked his looks, and he hers. By the way, he was young enough to be her son. The mutual attraction led to a most severe quarrel between Arthur Hayes and his erring wife. And I returned from laboring to keep you in your expensive ways, only to be told that Billings had been more than just a lodger in my absence. Do you expect me to sit alone while you're away? Am I to have no company? Not only do you cheat me at every turn, but you have such an orgy here with him that the whole neighborhood hears of it and laughs at me and pities me for being a fool, a deceived man. You are a fool. Cannot you open your eyes, see that you no longer please me? I wish for a change, Arthur. I'm still young, you know. Another word in that tone, Catherine. You blind idiot. Do you expect me to deny the advances of an attractive youngster like... Oh, you brute! <laughs> Perhaps that will quiet. <laughs> and strange to relate, Catherine's disposition changed from that day forward in Arthur's presence. To him, she was gay and charming. But to Billings and another lodger named Wood, two rather simple souls, she showed her true feelings towards her husband, and they were not quite so charming. You know, Mr. Wood, what a good-for-nothing Arthur is. Well, he's been a good friend to me, Mrs. Hayes. Billings here can vouch for that, can't you, Tom? Why, well, I don't think he's all he seems to be. That's right, Tom. Of course he isn't. Two things you don't know. First, he's an atheist. Uh, oh, oh, is he? Yes. And I've heard it preached that to kill such men is right. So what sin it must be. And worse than that, he's a murderer. No. Would I say it about my own husband if it were not true? He killed two men in the country, buried them under a pear tree. That's why we came to live in London. My word, an atheist and a murderer. And with all that money, too. Yes, 1,500 pounds he saved. All of it comes to me on his death. But what a scoundrel he is, eh? These arrant lies were not just idle chatter on the part of Catherine Hayes. Every story she concocted was told with a purpose, to secure the assistance of Mrs. Wooden Billings in the murder of her husband. decided they were given some unexpected help by their victim. One night would return from work to find Mr. and Mrs. Hayes and Billings in an uproarious mood. They'd been apparently shutting out the cold with the aid of large quantities of liquor. <laughs> oh, 
evening, Mr. Wood. <laughs> you look cold. There's a bad fog outside. Never mind the fog, Woody. Join us and drink up. Yes, oh. it's the best remedy for a cold in the world. Drunk <laughs> over a guinea's worth of liquor. <laughs> you know, I'm not drunk. Are you, Tommy? <laughs> drunk, not I. See, yeah, he's... I'll wager you couldn't drink six bottles of mountain and still be sober. If you can, I'll pay for it. And if it knocks you over, you pay. A bargain, a bargain. Six bottles of Malaga, eh? Pour me a thirst quencher. I'll get the bottles. Have a drink, Mr. Wood. <laughs> oh, kick furniture. Well done, Tom. It was just the right moment. Now, remember your promise, you two. What? What, tonight? The best opportunity we've had. He's sure to be drunk after this. But I, I, I did not pledge myself. You did. To get rid once and for all of a murderer. To kill him means less than to kill a dog in the gutter. And I'll not be stingy with the money. You promised, didn't he, Tom? I heard him with these two ears. All right. Sweet lass. Halfway through the first bottle already. <laughs> I'll do it easily, Billings. Go to it then, Hayes. You've still got another five bottles. Ah. <gasps> That's one. Can't be bothered with Tanker from the bottle now. Up for a bit of air. <laughs> Only a few more. Oh, spilled. Spilled, hang it. I spilled some. <laughs> oh, don't count it against me, Billy. You're doing marvels, Hayes. <sighs> Finished. Six bottles of mountain. And you pay. <laughs> where, 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 where am I? <laughs> I'm so giddy. He, he's completely insensible. Carry him onto his bed. Take the legs, Billy. I... I've got the shoulders. Yeah, heavy with all that wine in him, huh? There, you lead the way. Lay him on the bed. I'll fetch the hatchet. When Catherine Hayes returned, Billings took the hatchet from her and struck Hayes on the head, but it was not sufficient. So Wood snatched the hatchet from Billings and dealt the victim two more blows. Pond. We'll burn the clothes. The head we must put in the bucket and carry it to Westminster where we can throw it into the Thames. No one will ever find out who it is. Quickly now, we must finish by daybreak. And so it was that a watchman at Horse Ferry, Westminster, stumbled over something the next morning and that a man called Ashby three days later thought he recognized the head on the pole in St. Margaret's churchyard and went to see Mrs. Catherine Hayes. Yes? Oh, it's Mr. Ashby, isn't it? I wasn't sure whether you'd remember me. Oh, yes. You know, my, you knew my husband before we moved here. Is your husband in, Mrs. Hayes? No. Arthur's away. Oh? May I know where? Uh, Portugal. You're sure, Mrs. Hayes? I have reason to doubt it. But perhaps you can convince me. Why has he gone to Portugal? It's uh, a sad story, Mr. Ashby. Some time ago, my Arthur fought with a man. The man died from the blows Arthur struck, 
and uh, his wife was going to the constables about it. But finally she agreed to say nothing on Arthur's promising to pay a certain annual allowance to her. Recently, Arthur lost a lot of money. He could no longer pay the woman the money, so he has fled uh, to Portugal. I see. Thank you, Mrs. A. Good day. Ashby quickly repaired to the Eagle Tavern to meet his friend, Reg Logmore, and there told him what Catherine Hayes had said, explaining also that he was sure that the head in St. Margaret's churchyard was that of Catherine's husband. Between them, they decided to test the story, which is the reason that Longmore visited the lady that afternoon, pretending that he was a friend of Arthur's. He was told the same story. Almost. But then, you see, Mr... Uh, Longmore, ma'am. Mr. Longmore, my poor husband lost an amount of money so that he could no longer afford to pay this widow the allowance. In the end, against my wishes, of course, he decided to leave the city. And uh, where did he go, ma'am? Oh, I wouldn't tell anyone, you understand, but uh, oh, I would like to make contact with him, if possible. North of London, sir. He gave me no more exact address, but I think he is in Hertfordshire County. Oh, oh indeed. Well, thank you, Mrs. Hayes. You've been most helpful. And she never mentioned Portugal once. No, not once. Oh, she was not quite certain, but she thought he was in Hertfordshire. I think you're right about this affair, John. Well, I'm sure of it. Something else has happened since I saw you to confirm me and my suspicions. Oh? I went to see a rogue called Billings after you left me. He's a tailor and lodges in Arthur Hayes' house. I asked him if he'd seen the head in St. Margaret's churchyard. Well, go on. He said he hadn't. Whereupon I disclosed that I was sure it was his landlord's. And you know what was his reply? He cried... Nonsense. How could the head be his? I left him well in bed when I came to work this morning. Oh, John, oh, we can go no further in the matter, for we cannot take the law into our own hands. Justice Lambert's the man for us. You speak truth, Rach, though I'm determined to be there when they make the arrest. On being told the story, Mr. Justice Lambert decided that there was a prima facie case against Catherine Hayes and that he would attend to the arrest himself. Summoning the assistance of two officers of the lifeguards and followed by Ashby and Longbore, he appeared at Mrs. Hayes' lodgings at nine o'clock that night. With no ceremony, they walked upstairs to her room. Open in the name of the law. Who's there? Open in the name of the law. How do you then, madam? Officer, have you the casket I gave you as we set out? Uh, yes, Your Worship, I have it here. It shall perhaps be required before this episode is through. Uh, now, madam, uh, are you prepared? Officers, seize her. Look, there's Billings sitting on her bed. Thomas Billings, eh? I have a warrant for your arrest also. Make up another of your stories, Billings. Billings has been mending his stockings. His eyesight must be extremely good then, seeing that there is neither fire nor candle in the room. Why are we being arrested? Officer, give me that box. There you are, Your Worship. Lift out its grisly contents. There, madam. Do you not recognize this? Oh, it is my dear husband. Here now, wife. That's better. In my arms like this instead of that box. I must have a lock of his hair. Oh. She's fainted. She has perhaps seen too much of his blood already. <laughs> and the three criminals were then taken to the Old Bailey to await trial. Billings was the first to speak out in the hope of being treated leniently. On his advice, Marylebone Pond was dragged and the remaining limbs of Arthur Hayes were discovered. 
Wood then confessed also that in spite of the whole ghastly crime being disclosed, Catherine Hayes maintained her innocence. Catherine Hayes, your companions Wood and Billings have confessed to the murder of your husband, Arthur Hayes, and have pleaded guilty in the forthcoming trial. As examining magistrate, it is my duty to inform you that unless you alter your plea of not guilty, you will have to make a defense, for which, in due course, you will be provided counsel. The enormity of your alleged offense has induced the king, whose gracious majesty may God preserve, to direct the prosecution through no less a personage than the attorney general. In the trial that then took place, the attorney general of England argued for the supreme penalty of the law in those days, hanging and then burning. The jury, in spite of Catherine's repeated cries that she was being wronged, brought in the verdict after only a few minutes. Members of the jury, look on this woman. Do you find her guilty or not guilty of the foul crime with which she is charged? We find her guilty. My Lord! The female prisoner at the bar may speak. You have found me guilty, but I did not strike the fatal blow. Billings and Woody have admitted to that themselves. If I must suffer hanging, surely in view of their confession, I may escape burning. The request of the prisoner is denied. Catherine Hayes, you have been found guilty by just process of law of a most foul and heinous crime. To be burnt after hanging was a fate reserved for women. Men were hanged and then suspended by chains near the scene of the crime. Although Catherine's second assistant would cheated the gallows by dying in Newgate the day before his appointed execution, the corpse of Thomas Billings was duly strung up near Marylebone Pond, where the remains of Arthur Hayes had been discovered. As to the chief instigator of the crime, her end was almost more horrible than that of her victim. On May the 9th, 1726, the crowd about Tyburn, in spite of the layer of snow on the ground, was so great that only a few could see the gallows. But among those few were John Ashby and Reg Longmore, more than a little proud of their share in the apprehension of no longer Kath or Catherine, but just the woman Hayes. Here she comes, Reg. Can't see her face at the moment. Oh, they brought her on his, on his sledge. Oh, I wish they silenced that bell. It's the death knell from St. Sepulchre's Church. It'll stop when she dies. See, they're, they're chaining her to the stake. First they'll strangle her and then light the faggots. She looks calm. They've got the rope round her neck. Any moment now. She's up! She's up. reserve such a death for such a woman. In any case, that was the macabre finale to the history of Catherine Hayes. Don't be too horrified by this story. It took place a long time ago, when it was much more difficult to keep a good head on your shoulders. Gruesome stuff. That was uh, Buckets of Blood from The Secrets of Scotland Yard, one of my favourite radio programmes. On to the winner of The Towering Inferno on Blu-ray. 
Ka-chow. Steve McQueen and Paul Newman race against time as one tiny spark becomes a night of blazing suspense. The Towering Inferno. And the winner is... Monkey Hughes from Twitter. Email me, adam at attaboyclarence.com or send me a direct message with your address and I'll get that in the post for you promptly. Just want to give a very quick shout out to a weekly Geek Speak podcast. I won their competition last week. <laughs> Love that show. And they very kindly mentioned on Twitter that they listened to me. So thank you very much, guys. As a fan of weekly Geek Speak, I'm very honoured. Well, that's all we have time for. Hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or podcastland.com. Next week's show is a very Humphrey Bogart affair. I look forward to seeing you then. Thank you so much for being here and have a great week. Goodbye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.